Is your family ready for another furry best friend? Well, today we are introducing our new sponsor, Corgi Love. Corgi Love is a family-owned and operated farm located in Appomattox, Virginia, whose goal is to raise high-quality corgis that you will be proud to own. Corgi Love currently has a purebred litter of Pembroke Welsh corgis available right now. Corgi Love puppies are AKC registered, bred for breed character, and free of all known genetic defects. Get your corgi puppy today. The Facebook page and contact information will be in today's show notes. Welcome to Brands and Barbed Wire. I'm your host, Jim Johnson, and I'll take you behind the brands and we'll look through the barbed wire at some of the most iconic ranches in the world. So sit back, kick off your boots, and prepare to be entertained as I introduce you to those captivating stories from the legends of the brands and where there's no barbed wire that's going to hold us back. On today's episode of Brands and Barbed Wire, we get to visit with a gentleman who's been very successful in the cattle feeding segment of the industry. We learn about that industry, his time at Cattlefax, as well as NCBA, from its current past president, Jerry Bone. Jerry, thanks for joining us on Brands and Barbed Wire. Thanks, Jim. Good to be with you. And that's an interesting concept here of a, a cattle and egg uh, podcast. Well, good. I, I think you're going to enjoy it. And I, we've had a lot of good feedback so far. It's been it's been fun. So for some of the, the people out there that, that may not know who you are or or where you're from, why don't you give us a little a little breakdown of uh, you and your family and, and where you live and what that's like there? My wife, Julie, and I live in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, we we're, I'm a Kansas native. I grew up in northeast Kansas and uh, uh, have spent the bulk of my career here. I started out uh, after I graduated from uh, Kansas State University, I worked for Hormel Packing Company for a short time, and then I had to do a stint in the Army. Uh, I was an ROTC graduate and had to do my officer basic school. And then when I came back, I started work in the feed yard industry and worked in the feed yard for about three years. Then I spent over seven years working at Cattlefax, where I worked under Topper Thorpe. Uh, while I was there, I, I hired a couple of the guys that have stayed there for their whole career. Randy Block was hired. I hired him in 1980. He's now the CEO of uh, Cattlefax and just recently was honored as a certified Angus Beef for an Industry Achievement Award. And then I also hired Kevin Good while I was there, and uh, he stayed his whole career. And so I uh, must have made a pretty good decision there on that phone. So then in 1982, I left Cattlefax and went to uh, Pratt Feeders and uh, got involved with those guys. And uh, when I got there in 1982, we had about 15,000 of cattle on feed and one feed yard. And we've grown the company uh, over the years uh, uh, to where we owned uh, three feed yards and had a total capacity of about 90,000 head of cattle. And so I spent the bulk of my career there. I retired in uh, June of 2016. I'm still a stockholder in the company, and uh, we recently added another feed yard to the company. So we now have a capacity for about 145,000 head of cattle on feed at one time. And so uh, I'm active there, and my wife and I also own a fairly large irrigated farming operation in western Kansas. So uh, I'm involved in managing that. I've been involved in managing the farm for the cattle feeding company also. So I oversee about 5,000 acres of total irrigated farming. And then in my spare time, I got involved as an officer at National Cattlemen's Beef Association and rose up to the ranks and had the privilege of serving as president of NCBA in 2021. So 
that brings us kind of up to uh, where we're at today. Oh wow! Yeah, that's a pretty uh, that's a that's a pretty big summary. We've got to dive back into some of that and and learn a little bit more. So you're from Wichita. Is that where um, maybe your family was from? And and how did y'all arrive there? Well, I, we live in Wichita now. My wife grew up here, and uh, when I retired from the feed yard, we moved back here to Wichita. Uh, I have a daughter that lives here and a couple of sisters, as well as my wife's hometown. My hometown is actually northeast Kansas in uh, Wabunsee County, Alma, Alta Vista, Kansas area uh, in Flint Hills. And uh, my family, my granddad and great-granddad and, and different family members uh, uh, ran cattle in the hills there, uh, custom grazing and those kind of things uh, back in the old, uh, late 1800s to uh, well, probably currently. So. So that's curious, you know, for, for some of our um, listeners that might not know what the Flint Hills are, I mean, can you describe those and, and, and what's that look like versus uh, Wichita? Uh, the Flint Hills are rolling hills uh, that stretch from, uh, you know, it's an extension of the Osage country out of Oklahoma. It stretches clear across the kind of east central Kansas toward the Nebraska border. It's uh, rolling hills. Uh, the land's too rough. Uh, for farming, uh, it got its name because of the flint rocks that uh, uh, protrude out from some of the hills, and it's a very rich, tall grass prairie, and uh, very well known, I think, across the country and around the world for the, the quality of the grass that's grown there and the, the gains that the cattle make. And uh, one of the cool things that goes on there is the management of the prairie. Every spring, uh, we have a lot of fires that burn. Uh, they burn the grass so that the It'll come up green. It also helps control weeds and brush. And uh, so there's a, it's kind of an interesting area. Uh, used to be that we would graze the steer, the yearling cattle for 120 to 150 days. And new research showed that when you, uh, uh, they started double stocking, putting twice as many cattle out for less time. So usually now a lot of these yearling cattle are grazed for 90 to 100 days. And and they put out twice as many cattle per acre as what they used to on the full season grass and found that the cattle perform better and manages the land better. And so it's kind of been a win-win. And so do they do they then take half of them off and continue to graze or do they rest it after that? They rest it after that. They take them all off, like say 90 to 100 days and they're in and they're out. They usually turn out from oh the middle of April to the early part of May and then 90 days later, late July through early you know, mid to late August and they're all gone. So then uh, the land is rested and gets prepared for the next year. And that's, uh, I think it's really been a positive uh, impact on grass management and the quality of the grass. Oh, good. Good. That's interesting. So, so from there you went to, uh, you went to K-State and then majored in, in what at K-State? Majored in animal science and uh, business. Uh, I was active in all uh, the, Kansas State Block and Bridal Club. Uh, I think I was uh, on the wool judging team at one time, and then I also was on the livestock judging team and uh, under Dr. Bill Abel. Okay. Did you? Uh, is that where you met your wife? Met my wife at K State. Yes, uh, she's a Wichita native, and uh, we ended up uh, retiring here after after my career in the feed yard. At, and now live in Wichita. So, what made you want to get in the feed yard business? I mean, that was your that was your first job out of college, right? I mean, you, you what made you want to get into that side of the business? Well, in the early seventies, it was a growth industry. Uh, there was a lot going on. Uh, Kansas, uh, with the you know getting the development of irrigated farming, uh, 
uh, and the growth of the packing industry in our state uh, uh, just made some really good opportunities for young people that wanted to get into the business. And uh, I remember growing up, uh, there was a crowfoot feed yard there in, in eastern Kansas at Strong City, Kansas. And I was always enamored by that every time I drove by. And I uh, never, never dreamed that when I would uh, start a career that I would end up doing that kind of work. But uh, uh, because of the fact that it was a growth industry and there were opportunities, uh, uh, I chose to get involved in it. Yeah, interesting. And so you, you moved from there to uh, to Cattle Facts. And I'm really curious, when would Cattle Facts have started? And then, you know, what, what attracted you to Cattle Facts? And then maybe for some of our folks, tell us what Cattle Facts is and does and and, um, you know, give us a little background on Cattle Facts. I believe Cattle Facts started in the late 60s, early 70s, and it was an, uh, an attempt by uh, the cattle industry. And I think at that time, the National Cattlemen's Association, might have been American National Cattlemen's Association name at that time, uh, to provide additional information to try to level, level the playing field between producers and, and uh, packers. And uh, it was started uh, by, I think, Bill Helming was a real early CEO. Topper Thorpe then came in and was there uh, for like almost 40 years. Uh, uh, but Cattlefax is a cattle market analysis, uh, an economic uh, outlook uh, organization. And over the years, they have evolved and developed into a very dynamic organization. When I was there, our primary focus was day to day markets and some research and Today, they have become much more focused on market research and, tech, and technology and analysis, uh, and I think have become involved in working with uh, uh, you know, organizations around the country that are involved in agriculture but are not necessarily producers. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, while I was there, I hired Randy Block, and Randy's the current CEO and has been there since 1980, and Cattle has really developed into a first-class organization, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I'd agree. And Randy, uh, Randy sure seems to be doing a great job as CEO and he did a great job before then. I mean, he was really a dynamic speaker and, and was able to convey and, and communicate, uh, cattle facts, uh, at least that, that I've seen and been involved, uh, uh, very well. So, yeah, that's interesting. So, so you move from cattle facts, which, um, you know, had to be a, a pretty good good job and and back into the feeding industry and so what attracted you back into that side of the business again oh after i'd been at cattlefax for seven years and uh, just felt like i needed to uh get back into the industry and uh, in fact when i took this job at pratt feeders i turned it down the first time because it was just going to be such a big move from uh, moving from denver back to a small town in kansas and then we reconsidered and I went back to them and it was still open. And so we ended up getting together and it's been a really good move for me. I would say too, that the job at Cattlefax really jump started my career because I got to meet uh, people from all over the country, got involved with a lot of different producers and different uh, organizations around the country. And as I went into custom cattle feeding that uh, proved to be very valuable, uh, the contacts that I'd made and, the opportunity then to get to feed cattle for some of those people that I, I had met while I worked at Cattle Facts. And so, uh, and that, that I think my exposure there caused me while I was still at the work managing the feed yard to get active in the, in the Kansas Livestock Association and the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And so uh, it kind of whetted my appetite. So I stayed pretty active and went through, you know, a lot of the uh, committee chairmanships and 
vice assistant chairmanships, those kind of things at, at NCBA and KLA. Yeah, interesting. And I think that's that's an interesting point you brought up, how it jump-started your career. I can I can think of several people that, that are in leadership positions across the beef industry that that had a short career or a long career at Cattlefax. I mean, there were there's a lot of people that had probably jump-started their careers, uh, I think, over the years. And so great organization seems to be hired, you know, to have hired some really, really good people as well. It was a good training ground, I think, for a lot, as you mentioned, for a lot of people. And uh, I know it was, like I say, very beneficial for me. So, so now you're at, you're at, back at Pratt Feeders, and and tell us about um, tell us about the the feeding industry. We probably got some listeners that may not be familiar with that side of the business. Tell us what kind of goes into that and decision making, and and what your maybe day to day work would look like there. The, the feed yard that I managed there uh, at Pratt was uh, built on an old World War II airbase. B twenty nine bombers uh, crews were trained there and sent overseas, kind of toward the end of the war. I think the the airbase was built in about nineteen forty three, if I'm correct. Uh, there were about six thousand uh, troops stationed there at the height of the uh, of the airbase. Uh, it was shut down in nineteen forty six, and then. Uh, some local investors in uh, the early 1960s decided that it would be a good uh, site for a feed yard. And so they started uh, uh, building. And so the feed yard's built on three runways there. Uh, so we've got a lot of concrete, which is kind of unique. And uh, cattle feeding is, uh, it's kind of like, I would call it a cattle hotel. You know, uh, customers as well as the company buy and send feeder cattle to the feed yard. Uh, we put them on a, a grain di- high grain diet. Used to be we'd feed them 110, 120, 130 days and ship them to uh, the packer processor to uh, turn uh, to make turn it into beef for consumers. Today, I think we're feeding the cattle uh, younger age cattle. We're feeding them longer and making them bigger. Uh, I can recall uh, early in my career, if you had a heifer that weighed a thousand pounds, that was a big heifer. And today, a lot of them are weighing twelve to thirteen hundred pounds before they go to processing. So, I think it's a combination of uh, uh, you're seeing a lot better genetics today, uh, you know, higher quality, more better performing cattle than what we had back 30 years ago, as well as better technology in the feed yard, uh, you know. Uh, but the cattle are there are roughly 150 days. Uh, we start them out on a diet that's uh, high in hay or high in roughage and low in grain. And then every three to five days, we increase the grain and take a little roughage out. To, on about day 21, they're on the finished diet, which is in our situation was about 80 percent concentrate diet and they're fed there uh, until they're ready to go to the packers but i think a, a good description is a, is a cattle hotel uh, we provide everything uh, that we can do to care for the cattle uh, uh, you know feed food uh, fresh water high quality feed animal health care animals are checked every day by a pen rider and then when the cattle are ready to be uh, go to the packer processor uh, we coordinate with the cattle owner, make a decision about when the cattle will be sold and at what price. Um, the advent of recent years, uh, more and more cattle are being sold on a grid basis where uh, the cattle owner gets rewarded for uh, the hot carcass yield and the quality grade of the animal. That, uh, and then the, we can provide data back to the cattle owner so that he can make better management decisions and hopefully continue to produce a higher quality animal for the future. Yeah, are you involved with? Um, it seems like are you involved with U.S. Premium Beef at all? 
Yes, our company was an original uh, member, original investor of U.S. Premium Beef. Uh, in the early years, uh, U.S. Premium Beef owned about uh, about forty percent, I believe, of National Beef Packing Company, and we partnered with Farmland Industries at that time back in I think nineteen ninety six. And Farmland then sold out, and we owned we were the majority owner. And U.S. Premium Beef owned about seventy three percent of National Beef until two thousand eleven. Uh, when uh, majority interest was sold to Lucadia National. Lucadia was an investment firm out of New York. They owned it until about 2018 or 19, when uh, they then sold it to Marfrig out of uh, South America. Uh, U.S. Premium today owns about 15% of national beef. We send roughly 800,000 head of cattle a year through the, through the national plant. Uh, and U.S. Premium was formed to uh, have, first of all, have access to the packing plant hooks, you know, uh, particularly in times of high uh, supplies of fed cattle. Two, it was to uh, be able to provide data back to cons- producers about the kind of cattle that they were producing, you know, what, how the quality grade and carcass, hot carcass yield and all that. And third was to vertically integrate and to be able to participate further upstream as a part owner of a processing plant. So it's been very successful. Uh, you know, there were some lean years. Uh, I don't think it's any secret. Packer margins the last uh, several years have been very, very good. And so our producer members were able to take have the benefit of that. And uh, um, so it's been a really good move for us. And our company continues. To, we probably send close to 100,000 head a year uh, through that program to uh, national. Yeah, I think um, as you hear about small packing plants popping up around the country now, they seem to be mirroring or imitating that U.S. premium model. It seems like, and so it must have been a must have been a pretty good model and pretty successful. Yeah, I think it's been a very good model, and there are people imitating it today. Uh, uh, you know, and I, I'm I'm encouraged that there are some additional uh, potential plants being planned. Uh, I know there's some government assistance available for. Uh, certainly small locker plants and small to medium plants all over the country. Uh, uh, it's no secret that we had a bottleneck here starting with the fire at Tyson and uh, Holcomb, Kansas in 2019. And then the COVID pandemic uh, caused plants to get shut down because of, uh, you know, the crews were sick and uh, we backed up probably well over a million head of cattle there in 2020-21. And it's just finally here in 2022, maybe we're getting out from under that backlog. And, uh, but we need to be able to have a bigger, uh, you know, a bigger funnel, if you will, for uh, beef processing. And uh, it looks like that's going to happen. Uh, unfortunately, we're at a p- point in the cattle cycle right now where when they, if they get them started here and they get online, they may be starting up at about the same time as the, the bottom of the, the cattle cycle when the numbers are the tightest. So uh, they're, they're going to have some challenges in the in the getting started. I'm afraid. Yeah, yeah. I think we've talked about it on a couple other podcasts. Is you know you can do everything right, but your timing's not quite right, <laughs> and it can it can be a tough go at it. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by BRC Brahmins. BRC has created their own legacy by taking their time tested bloodlines, breed leading performance, and classic style into uncharted territories of genomic excellence and premium marbling, arriving 
as the unmistakable leader of destination in the modern American Brahmin. For more information and their upcoming events, visit brcutrer.com. That's B-R-C-U-T-R-E-R.com. So you started managing Pratt and grew that, got involved in, uh, in U.S. premium beef. What goes into this, the decision to purchase more, more feeding capacity or more feed yards? Well, in our situation, it was uh, once we got started, if the first feed yard was staying full all the time and we had demand for more demand for our, our services and what we had room, so then we would go buy another feed yard. Uh, we started at Pratt. I think the original owners started in 1980. I got there in the summer of 1982. In 1989, we added a feed yard at Ashland, Kansas, uh, and we uh, had to kind of refurbish it and remodel it and grow it up a little bigger. Uh, it's about a 15 to 17,000 head facility. So when that one got operating and going well uh, in 1995, we bought uh, Buffalo Feeders in Buffalo, Oklahoma. That uh, feed yard started operating very well in, uh, uh, in 2000. Um, Early 2000s, we bought a feed yard at Hayes, Kansas. Uh, we dispersed of that yard in 2015 during that was uh, the low in the cattle cycle. You know, we came through a drought period there in the 2011, 12, 13, 14. Cattle numbers got very, very tight. And we just decided that we needed to downsize a little bit to uh, uh, maintain the three main yards. And so we sold that facility. And then uh, here just in... Uh, May, 1st of May of 2022, uh, we purchased Ford County Feed Yard at Dodge City, Kansas, which is uh, a very nice facility and a, really located really, really well for us uh, as related to uh, our management opportunities with our team and then the, the location being just very close to two large packing plants there in Dodge City. And so then what, when did you start uh, getting involved in in the leadership or, or NCBA? And tell us a little bit about... Uh, about that and that organization and what it does and and maybe some of your experiences there if you don't mind when i got to pratt in 1982 i i, I started to uh, attend meetings for the kansas livestock association they had uh, they had formed a cattle feeders council there in the early 70s and so i i began to get involved in, in that and uh, and then in uh, 1993 i served as the chair of the kansas cattle feeders council for a year uh, was also involved in uh, cattle marketing issues. Uh, on behalf of KLA, I got involved in NCBA uh, uh, as we were looking, working with cattle futures uh, issues, uh, uh, cattle marketing issues. I served on the Live Cattle Marketing Committee there for a number of years, representing the Kansas Livestock Association. In 1997, I served as uh, president of, of the Kansas Livestock Association. And uh, then I went on on behalf of KLA, served on uh, the executive committee of NCBA for three years. And then I, I uh, by my activity on the Live Cattle Marketing Committee, I was committee chair, I think, in the early 2000s. So I just continued to be active there. And, uh, um, and then when I retired in 2016, I had more time to serve. And so I uh, threw my hat in the ring and was elected vice chair of policy for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. And then I uh, worked up, I was uh, the next year served as chair, policy chair. Then I was elected as vice president, then president-elect, and then president in 2021. 
but KLA and NCBA are involved in lobbying in Washington, D.C., making certain that the government doesn't do harm to our industry. We end up playing defense quite a bit, but there are times when we can play offense where we can introduce legislation and get it passed. I think NCBA is probably is the strongest lobbying, agricultural lobbying organization in Washington, D.C., in fact, a couple of years ago, a very prominent member, non-member of, uh, that wasn't a member of NCBA at the time, made the comment that it had become very apparent to him that if you want to get something done in agriculture in, in Washington, D.C., you better be involved with the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. So, so we work uh, on behalf of, cattle, of the cattle industry every single day. We also will work across the, with other org- like organizations in D.C. when there are things going on that will are of uh, importance to all of agriculture. You know, we work with Farm Bureau, we work with the pork, pork producers, we work with the poultry people. Uh, we also work with uh, business organizations that have like, you know, there's issues that affect us like environment, those kind of things. Uh, uh, so, and then I think what sticks out about NCBA is we have about 43 or 44 state livestock associations around the country that are affiliated with us. We also are a uh, contractor for the beef checkoff. And we have a federation of state beef councils, 40, 42, 43 different state beef councils around the country that work uh, collectively for beef promotion, beef research, beef safety, uh, and promoting beef and, you know, getting consumers to uh, uh, understand the importance of including beef in their diet. So NCBA is a broad-based organization. Uh, We represent some 25,000 direct members across the country and probably another 200 plus thousand that are indirect members through their involvement in our state affiliates. I think that's great. I, I, um, and I was thinking uh, as you were talking, so, you know, we've got some beef producers that that listen, you know, why should we as producers um, get involved within CBA and, and what does that involvement look like? First of all, just becoming a member, you know, uh, um, I think the minimum membership is $150 uh, per year. And then um, we also ask for fair share for, uh, you know, larger uh, ranches, larger cattle feeders uh, to pay an additional amount of money based on the number of cattle that they operate. I know uh, the, the feed yards in the larger cattle feeding states pay so many cents ahead a day for the cattle on feed in their feed yards. Uh, I think the importance of getting involved is that we are working every day in, in the office in Denver and in the Washington, D.C. office to protect the, indus- the interests of the industry. You know, our producers are busy taking care of cattle, farming, raising feed, doing the, the work uh, that they have to do to take care of their animals. And there's a lot of things that go on in Washington that have an impact. And that's what NCBA is about, is paying attention to that, to working with Congress to uh, pass legislation that. Uh, is favorable for the industry. And as I mentioned earlier, often we are uh, opposing legislation that would be negative to the industry. And so, uh, uh, you know, cattle marketing has been a big issue recently, and we've been heavily involved in that, uh, making certain that uh, uh, government doesn't try to have a one-size-fits-all solution for marketing issues because we have a very dynamic industry. And you know what what goes on in the corn belt and the way cattle are fed and marketed is high grip pretty different compared to what goes on in the Southern Plains of, uh, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, Kansas. And so we want to make certain that uh, 
basically is the government does no harm to the industry. We're heavily involved in environment. Uh, we also have a, we work closely with the Public Lands Council uh, and represent ranchers in the, you know, in the, in the uh, western part of the country that operate on federal lands. And so uh, uh, we're involved in that arena also. So uh, uh, taxes are a big deal. Uh, you know, we work to protect uh, uh, the interest of the industry from uh, uh, losing a step up in basis, for example, and the state tax work, those kind of things. So very, very varied and wide ranged uh, work. Uh, we have a group that works on uh, helping us uh, get involved in international trade, making certain that we can export beef to countries around the world, that there are not trade barriers that prevent us from selling beef to other countries. Uh, I think it's interesting, too, uh, um, international trade is benefiting us about $350 to $400 a head right now on every fed animal. And so it's very important that we continue to protect that access to those foreign markets. And uh, we have a team in Washington that are working on that every day. We also work on animal health issues. Uh, uh, we have a, a couple of veterinarians on staff in the DC office that are monitoring and working uh, in the animal health areas. You know, uh, one of the big things right now is the development of a foot and mouth uh, vaccine bank so that if we ever have foot and mouth disease in, the, in this country, and heaven forbid that we get it, but that we are prepared to uh, uh, do what it takes so that we can keep cattle moving uh, if, if and when that disease would ever hit us. Yeah, no, there's a lot of a lot of things they do, and I think it's good for for people to hear that. I think sometimes we uh, we look at we can pick or look at one or two things that NCBA does and and think that's it, but but just to understand the breadth and and width of it and and the involvement, I think is important. So thank you for that. You know, one of the challenges, uh, Jim, I think, too, is we're our own worst enemy. We have a lot of infighting in our industry. I think we all we all would agree if we would concentrate on the 90 percent that we all agree on, we would be a lot further ahead and, and not focus on the 10 percent where we have uh, disagreement. And uh, that's a challenge. I think that we continue to work on uh, extremely hard is to try to come together and work together and uh, quit sniping at one another. And I think we would. Uh, find out that uh, we can all get along pretty well because I think not like say 90% of the time, I think we agree on most everything. Yeah. I think that's, uh, I think that's, that's human nature. And then, I mean, <laughs> you look at all the different church denominations out there <laughs> agree on 90% of it, but disagree on 10 and you go ahead and plant another church. <laughs> and so, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting. I think it's human nature, but, but I think you're right. So, so bring us up to, uh, to, to Jerry Bones retirement and, and, and sort of that decision. And, and I guess, you know, life after retirement, which doesn't from the beginning, doesn't sound like much of a retirement. Uh, I've, I've, I've continued to stay pretty active. You know, I'm winding down my uh, time uh, working with NCBA. I'm serving currently as past president. Uh, I'm still, uh, uh, involved in the weekly officer calls and on the executive committee. Uh, my last task will be uh, chairman of the nominating committee coming up here. Uh, we'll start our work here in the next few months. We'll culminate with uh, selecting a new slate of officers at our convention in New Orleans in February. Still serve on the board of U.S. Premium Beef, uh, representing my company, and I'm still on the board of directors for Pratt Feeders, and uh, uh, we usually have monthly meetings. Uh, uh, to, to uh, go over what's going on with the cattle feeding company. And then, as I mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm involved in my own personal uh, uh, farming operation and I still feed a few cattle and, uh, 
and we we have a, a a lake house and Table Rock Lake in Southwest Missouri. So we spend, particularly in the summer, spend some time over there. My wife and I have been traveling some, and so uh, we're staying pretty busy yet. Yeah, it sounds like it. So give us a little bit of your um, crystal ball, maybe. I mean, where do you think this uh, this beef industry is going? What do you think? Uh, what do you think the future looks like for it? And and uh, maybe for some young folks that are starting out, what are, what are what are some opportunities? I know um, we had uh, Dr. Larry Cor on a few episodes back, and and Larry was was really optimistic, and you know he was he was excited that that the quality of beef is increasing, and so is the the the, the demand for it, and and he was pretty excited about that. I mean, what's what's your crystal ball look like? Well, I think he's right. Beef demand is record good. You know, it's the beef demand is the best it's been in over thirty years, and I think that's a a testament to the industry and the quality of the cattle that we're producing. You know, if there's anything that good that came out of uh, the drought back in the 2011, 12, 13, 14 area is I think we called down and got rid of some of the lesser desirable, less desirable genetics and we replaced them with higher quality animals. And uh, boy, the quality of the cattle, the, you know, the percent of cattle degrading choice and prime has never been better. Uh, I think, Recently, we were over 80% choice and prime in the average across the country. I think that's dipped back a little bit here recently because of the uh, uh, extremely high feed costs and uh, the drought that we're experiencing now. But uh, beef demand is excellent, both domestically and around the world. Um, you know, the Chinese uh, demand for our product has uh, increased substantially over the last few years. Uh, that's a, a bright spot. One of the uh, you know the ch- current challenges is just the drought that's going on, and which we'll get through that at some point. Uh, but I think we've got a pretty positive thing going on. You know, the the average age of the ranchers is pushing sixty years old, so there's going to be some uh, opportunities for young people. Uh, there's going to be some operations available for them to get involved, and hopefully, there will be some older guys that will take a young person under their wing and get them started and. Uh, there's going, but there's, there is a lot of opportunity. I think technology, you know, this new generation is going to uh, be willing to implement technology and, and make jobs, uh, make us more efficient yet than what we are today. So I think that's an exciting op- opportunity also. We just interviewed uh, Steve Radakovich, and Steve was talking about how they had taken their family operation and, and passed it on to a younger uh, producer in their area and how they were able to make that transition. And I think those are, those are opportunities we're going to, have to look for, um, you know, as we, as we look at the future is how we're going to transition some of this, because, you know, there's a, there's a huge financial, um, ask, uh, when doing that, that, that some of these young people just can't, can't take on initially. And I think, um, I think we're going to, have to figure some of that out as a, as a as an industry how we pass that on and help them and help them get started and still stay involved and and stay involved in some of the some of the management of it but but also create that next generation that wants to come up and do it. One of the big challenges I think is just the value of land. We've got so much demand from out, outside agriculture wanting to buy up the land and running up the price, and so I think that's a uh, a challenge going forward. And you know the I think I read recently where some upwards to 2,000 acres a day of ag land is getting developed into urban uh, housing and urban development. And I think we better pay attention, you know, uh, our capacity to uh, 
uh, produce food for our nation uh, is under attack in that regard. And uh, the world population is expected to expand exponentially here in the coming years. And so the demand for food is going to be really, really great. And so, as I, we talked earlier, uh, uh, having technology that allows us to uh, grow more food on the less land is going to be uh, very challenging. Well, Jerry, I really appreciate your time today and and uh, learning more about you and the cattle feeding business and especially NCBA. I hope uh, maybe to catch back up with you later after you uh, <laughs> slow down a little bit more and retire again, and uh, maybe we can we can catch back up and and see what's happening. But I uh, really appreciate your time and joining us uh, uh, today on Brands and Barbar. Jim, thanks for having me, and uh, good luck on your podcast as you go forward. And I'll. Uh... I'll dial it up here and we'll listen to some of them. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jerry. All right. Have a good day. For our producer, Carlos Cheriboga, I'm your host, Jim Johnson. God bless and thank you for listening to Brands and Barbed Wire. The Brands and Barbed Wire podcast can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share. You can also find additional content at our Brands and Barbed Wire Facebook page and at brandsandbarbedwire.com. We hope you enjoyed Brands and Barbed Wire. Brands and Barbed Wire is sponsored by JMAR Genetics. The annual Quality Over Quantity Bull and Heifer Sale will be held on October 13th on DV Auction. There are over 30 bulls and 20 heifers on test, where you'll get information like feed efficiency, performance information, carcass ultrasound, genomic enhanced DPDs, and foot scores. Visit jmargenetics.com for more information.